Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. If these resources have been a blessing to you, we would be honored if you would consider making a donation to our church building fund. To learn more about this unique challenge ahead of us and to partner with us for a gospel legacy in Missoula, please visit achurchbuilding.com. That's achurchbuilding.com. So uh, we've been going through the book of Deuteronomy here at Sovereign Hope, and we've reached a natural transition point in the book where Moses has kind of concluded this extended prologue to the law, and he's going to begin when we uh, gather in Deuteronomy next time to unpack this law. And what Moses is basically doing is he's looking at what has happened in Israel's past, and he's using that to encourage them to live differently in the future. And he's done this through a lot of means, but one of the primary things that he's doing in the first 11 chapters is he's using this phrase, take care. Take care. In other words, he's saying, don't forget. Five times in chapters 1 through 11, Moses has reminded Israel of something historic which has happened, and then he says, take care lest you forget, or take care lest you be deceived. When I was in college and when I was in seminary and they're giving you these helpful points on public speaking, they always say, repeat your main point. Make it clear. Five times Moses says, take care, take care, take care, take care, take care. While it might not be the primary point in Deuteronomy, Moses knows how important it is for God's people to constantly be reminded to not be thoughtless towards what God has done and what God is doing. We are a people who in times of emptiness and in times of excess sometimes get forgetful. Sometimes we get distracted. And in those moments, Moses says in Deuteronomy 8 when he's reflecting on Israel in the wilderness, he says, you were brought through the wilderness so that God might test what is in your heart. And we at Sovereign Hope are in a sort of wilderness of our own. As the vast majority of you are aware, the city has bought uh, this land and uh, are not, they're not renewing our lease on it, which leaves us searching not only for a new home, which we hope we have found, but also leaves us needing funds to fund that new home. And amazingly, where we sit right now, I think the back of the bulletin says that we have uh, $337,000, $337,000, which has predominantly been raised in the last nine months, which is incredible. That's almost our entire, an additional church budget being raised in the last nine months. And despite that, though, the building still has a, a much discounted, compared to market value, price tag of $1.4 million, and that's without any remodel or without any occupancy. And the reality of this is that it's not my building fund. It's not the elders' building fund. This July, our membership gathered, and, and we had two meetings where we looked at this, and we voted to say, this is our building fund. Which, there's something beautiful about that. That means that it doesn't rely on any one person. No one is responsible for the building fund. But the burden of it is that all of us, to a degree, share the similar burden. We could all be discouraged in different ways when we consider the building fund. And Tim Keller uses a helpful illustration um, when it comes to marriage. He says marriage is like a five-ton Mack truck, which it's, I didn't call your spouse a five-ton Mack truck. Tim Keller did, for the record. Uh, and, and your heart is like a bridge. And when that truck goes across the bridge, 
the bridge, if it's not properly maintained, may begin to show some cracks. And it's not that the bridge just started to get cracks. It's that those cracks were always there through years of neglect. And the weight of this new trial just reveals it. And through this lens, the weight of trials that we go through are actually grounds for thanksgiving because it exposes places where we were unknowingly weak. And it points us to the places where we can get help. The British preacher Charles Spurgeon um, suffered with physical and emotional despair kind of his whole life. And he said in a similar way, he said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. The Apostle Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10. But he, that's Jesus saying to Paul, says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now Paul's back to talking. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul is boasting in his weakness. He's boasting in the cracks that he sees forming in the bridge of his heart. And in this way, the building fund leads us at Sovereign Hope to gratitude because it exposes issues in our individual hearts and in our corporate church which God stands there with the welding torch of the gospel and says, I'm big enough for this. I'm big enough for this. And in the building fund, we have an opportunity not to just be wishful thinkers, unknowingly saying, if God's going to do it, God's going to do it, nor dreary doubters wondering if this will ever come about. But we have the opportunity to be faithful and to be thankful. We have, as Paul talked about, an opportunity to be boastful worshipers in the face of things that seem to be large and ominous. And you might be visiting here today, you might have no corporate connection to our current building need, but what we know, what is illustrated in Deuteronomy, as we've been going through it, is that this life will test you. There will be things in your life that seem so big and so large And if you're only able to see thankfulness for God in what is obvious, then you're going to neglect so much grace that comes from from all of this, from the brokenness in this life. And so this sermon that we're doing today is not a, a typical sermon that we get at Sovereign Hope. It's not expositional like we normally do of looking at, uh, at one text uh, in a book of the Bible and working through that and expanding that. Because um, this actually comes from a number of months ago. I was really wrestling with the building fund. And uh, God convicted me of some wrong thoughts I had. Of me looking at the five-ton Mack truck in ways which were not God-honoring. And that morning, uh, I was sitting in my office And I grabbed a sticky note, and I just wrote out, for my own good, five reasons why I'm thankful for the building fund. And that sits, you could go, you all go, it could be like a museum, look at my office afterwards. It sits on my monitor, where I do most of my work, and it reminds me every day that this is for our good. This is for our joy. Just as Moses wanted the Israelites to take care and not forget, and so he always reminded them, So this building fund, these numbers we look at every week is an opportunity that God has given to us to remind us of ways in which we should be filled with gratitude towards what God has done and what God is doing. In other words, 
The five reasons I'm thankful for the building fund are five ways where it reminds us of the gift of God we have. And so these are the five things we're going to look at today. Um, You don't have to worry about writing them all down right now. We'll come back to them later. But we're going to see that the building fund reminds us that we trust not in numbers, that generosity gives us joy, discipleship is always costly, ministry has no end, and Jesus is our legacy. So with that said, the first point we're going to look at is this, is that the building fund reminds us that we trust not in numbers. And for this, Psalm 20, which was read for us, is going to be kind of the bookends to our sermon today. I'm going to read the whole psalm again. May the Lord, well, I'll start with the, the, the script, to the choir master, a psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all of your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banner. May the Lord fulfill all of your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we will rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. So this psalm is a psalm written to be sung from the perspective of God's people. And it reflects a unique heart of the people where when they are in times of uncertainty in this kingdom lifestyle, when they are threatened by external forces or internal turmoil, they are to pray and plead for the success of their king. That in the welfare of the king, they would also find their welfare. And we see this wonderfully proclaimed in verses 6 through 8. And in those verses, um, the people are being taught to express two truths simultaneously. Two truths that are really important for us. And that's that they express confidence that God will deliver his anointed. God's king, God's means of salvation will always provide deliverance. But the second truth is that God's deliverance comes from his holy heaven and from his might. Which means God's saving power doesn't look like the saving power of man. It comes from God's heaven and not the military hangers of man. And if we don't realize that, we're often frustrated when the thing we're looking at, the chariot and the horse that we trust in, isn't riding to deliver us. But here we see that God's salvation comes from God and not from the world. And this is wonderfully illustrated um, in the story of Gideon in Judges chapter 7. And Gideon is uh, the leader of God's people, and God at this time is calling the people of Israel to go fight against the army of the Midianites. And it's, I love, like when we read the Bible together, sometimes we, we see things and we're like, why is this in here? But when we just read it as a story, it makes a lot more sense. Because there's this aside that the author gives in Judges chapter 7, verse 12. It says this, And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. So this is just one verse 
in the middle of this thing that otherwise is all about Gideon, and it throws us in here, why? Because God wants you to know how big this camp is. How big? You can't number it. They got more camels than you can number. Why is that important? Because if they've got a lot of camels, there's a lot of dudes with swords behind the camels. The opponent is huge, outnumbered, powerful and mighty. And so Gideon sees this. He's no dummy. And he looks at this army. He's like, I got to get a lot of guys. And so by any means necessary, and I mean any means necessary, because we'll see how many of these guys don't actually want to be in this army. Gideon scrounges up 32,000 men of Israel to go against this army without number. But look at what happens in Judges 7, verses 2 through 3. So this is Gideon and his army. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. So we see how pervasive and perhaps uh, guilt-laden Gideon's call to fight was. Because God says, ask this mighty army who actually wants to fight. And over half of them are like, I'm out, peace. I see the numbers, I see our numbers, but it doesn't add up. So they leave, and they go. Why? Well, God tells us. He wants Israel to not conquer the Midianites and say, look at what we did. He says, you will be delivered by my hand. What we just saw in Psalm 20, by God's mighty hand. But look at what happens next. After the army's cut in half, look at what happens next. Verses 4 through 7. And the Lord returned to Gideon. The people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I'll test them for you there. I love that. God's like, I'll test him for you. <laughs> like, I don't want you to test him, Gideon. I'll do the testing. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone to whom I say, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. Let all the others go every man to his home. You see, there are times in the Bible where some of the, the heroes of faith we read of are just men of sincere, studly faith. Gideon is not one of those men. <laughs> And here God weans down fearful, timid Gideon's troops to 300 in the face of an army that's getting no smaller. Are there days in your life where you feel like Gideon? Where it seems like at every turn, the things that you hope in become damaged or diminished, all the while your enemy seems to loom larger than ever. It's in those moments where God is reminding you of where your hope ultimately is. Because in this situation, it's assumed that Gideon lacked confidence in his 300 men. It's also assumed that the Midianites had great confidence in their innumerable men, but none of those numbers meant anything apart from God. 
Now, the real tension is, is that God used those 300 men. God uses means. It's not that it magically happened apart from God's means, that we'd get a building without money, or that the gospel would grow without missionaries. But in all of this, God is showing that the means are not the end. Hoping in God is the end. God will use whatever he desires to use for his glory. And I can tell you there have been days uh, during this building fund where the little thermometer we have on the screens in the back has been my hope. If it's larger, I'll have more peace. If that donor comes through, then we'll make it. Maybe for you, it's if the scans come back clean. If the internship comes through. If the offer gets accepted. And in those moments, we can often realize that even if we're talking about those things prayerfully to God, if we're not careful, we could actually be hoping in something which is not God. We could be saying, God provides exactly how I want God to provide. And we say, this is what your salvation will look like. And if it doesn't look like this, you're not mighty to save. And this is especially true when it comes to the gospel. If you're someone who's always wrestling with assurance of faith, God is testing your heart to show you that perhaps you might be leaving apart the work of Jesus. If you think the confidence you have before God comes from the amount of prayers you've offered, the amount of rededications of your life, the amount of money donated or hours given, you miss the wonderful confidence that comes from seeing that only Jesus has done what is necessary to save you. Only Jesus is our confident hope before God in the face of sins innumerable and death unmovable. See, if you're a non-believer in here today, if you're a believer who is constantly wrestling with what is measurable and observable, I want you to consider that the only thing we're able to trust with confidence is the work that Jesus did on the cross. That no amount of 401ks or chariots or horses or donors or health will ever endure, but Jesus will. And this building fund leads us to faithfully give without trusting in the number. Sometimes it's God's grace to remove things that we hope in to realize that our trust has been misplaced. But an object of greater, more certain trust has been there all along for us to hope in. So we're grateful that we learn not to trust in Daniel's trendy graphics or in numbers, but we trust in God. The second reason I'm grateful for the building fund is that it reminds us that generosity gives joy. Generosity gives joy. Just this past week, um, the NCAA handed down some punishment to a college basketball player, and as part of the punishment, he was required to donate $11,000 to a charity of his choice. And this stood out to me for two reasons. The first is that we are attracting the totally wrong kind of college student. I want the college students who can be fined $11,000. That's the college student I want in our church. Um, I haven't found one of those yet, but I pray they come. But the other thing is, is how silly that language is. That he would be required to donate to charity. Donating something in order to meet a requirement is by nature not a donation. It's a purchase. It's purchasing absolution. It's purchasing justification. It's purchasing playing time. But also... The word charity, looking at its Greek origin, comes from the Christian ideas of love and mercy. Those are very rarely ever applied from the outside as punishment. But for many of us, 
Don't we view our generosity in the same way? And if I pulled everybody in here, I said, do you believe that generosity gives joy? We would all check yes. I'm pretty sure we would. There's like this stoic notion out there that we understand generosity gives joy. But I think, on a whole, our experience betrays our answer. I think there's this sort of like royal commitment to saying that word, understanding that phrase, but in reality having it be completely devoid of affection. As if joy can sometimes mean through grit teeth, I would do anything possible to not be in this situation. And what's interesting is when our hearts are tried by things, we seek to cling to the promises of God, to where God promises to bless. I remember when uh, Sarah and I found out we were pregnant three months into marriage, not according to any of our plans, and we were worried and anxious. We went to Psalm 127, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. We're like, Lord, we are so scared, but you said that you would bless this, that this is blessed by you. Or someone who in relationships, maybe in your home or at school or with families, we look at Jesus' words, we say, blessed are the peacemakers. It seems that nothing in my world gives me peace, but you say this, Lord, make me feel this blessedness. Remind me of this peace or for the persecuted church to say, blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake, for they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Do we pray and plead that those promises are afforded to us even when it seems scary? Yes, we do. But I have never once pleaded with God, Acts 20, 35, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I've never once pleaded, Lord, you said this is blessed. You said this is for your good. You said this is for my joy. Why is that? I think it's because it's so easy for us to functionally disconnect generosity from the gospel. To see it as something which belongs in the human sphere of charity and not in the Christian sphere of conversion. But look at what Paul says in the famous passage in 2 Corinthians 9. And what I want you to notice is what's in the middle. What stands at the heart of the generous giver. So this is verses 6 through 15 in 2 Corinthians 9. The point is this, says Paul. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things and at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing in many thanksgiving to God. 
By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. So what stands out there is the emotional language in this text. Inexpressible gift, thanks be to God, enriched in every way, generous, abounding, more and more and more and more. And sometimes we take that and we just say, if I do this enough, then I will be happy and satisfied and I'll be the cheerful giver. But that misses that's, that's legalism, <laughs> to say, if I give enough, then I'll be happy about what I've given. That's being out in front of God, hoping he'll catch up. But God is out in front of us. That's what grace is. God's out in front of us, and we respond to it. Because at the center of this text is Jesus. He quotes the psalm. He has distributed freely and has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. You see, it's in the gospel of Jesus that we get what we really need. Our greatest need is not wealth or power or privilege. Our greatest need is that we need righteousness. Our greatest problem is that we are irreparably broken and imperfect, separated from the God who made us, that we might enjoy him forever. But Jesus gives us his righteousness Jesus gives us his perfection. Jesus gives us his satisfaction with God and he takes all of our punishment for breaking that covenant. And here's the key to generosity. Because Jesus' righteousness endures forever, those who are covered by Christ, we just sang it, will be held fast by Christ, which means the rest of us can hold everything else loosely. If Jesus holds us fast, everything else is an open-handed issue. Because Jesus has generously given to us, we can generously give to others. You can never accidentally give away what you need because Jesus' righteousness stands forever. And it's not until you see that you can be truly generous because the truth is finances are not the cause of generosity. Paul says it, it, generosity manifests itself not just in giving but in every good work. This isn't just true financially, it's true relationally. You can't generously clean up after your roommate and clean up their mess until you see Jesus has already cleaned up your mess. You can't generously give your time, or you can generously give your time because Jesus has generously given you eternity. You can generously know joy because in those moments of giving, you're reminded of what you cannot lose. This is for our joy that God is calling us to do this. He is after your joy. Reminds me of a Charles Spurgeon illustration where he described a gardener who was caretaking his master's garden, and there's this one rose bush whom, he, whom the, the, the gardener loved, and he, he cultivated it and cared for it, and it had this immaculate rose that bloomed from it. But one morning when walking through the garden, the rose was gone, and he was beside himself. Someone had snuck into the garden and stolen it away. And Spurgeon picks up, he says, he was complaining very bitterly of his loss when someone said, the master has been down in the garden this morning and he has been admiring this rose bush. He has taken away that fine bud of which you were so proud. Then the gardener was delighted that he had been able to grow a flower that had attracted his master's notice. Instead of mourning any longer, 
he began to rejoice. So it should be with anything on which we have set our hearts. Let each one of us say to our master, my Lord, if it pleases you to take it, it pleases me to lose it. Why should I complain? Because you have taken what was already your own. May this building fund and the the idea of giving remind us that we have been given something we cannot lose. And because of that, because of Christ's immaculate righteousness, we can give everything to Jesus. The third reason why I'm grateful for the building fund, we're plowing through this, is that discipleship is always costly. Discipleship is always costly. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the ends of the age. And so I'm going to define discipleship for us as Jesus defines discipleship for us in this text. Discipleship is the mission of the church. The church exists as commissioned by the Jesus, the husband who died for it, to make disciples. It's what the church does. To be part of Jesus' church is to join in the mission of discipleship, which is simply to help each other follow Jesus. That's the sum of what Jesus came to commission us to do. And we talk about that twofold commission in Matthew 28 where he says you make disciples by going out and you make disciples by growing up. Going out and proclaiming Christ to those who have never heard and by teaching and instruction, growing up those who have heard. That's how important discipleship is to the church. The church exists to make disciples for the glory of God. Which shapes why we do what we do as the church. It shapes how we think about our building plans and the footprint of our church. But more importantly than that, it shapes our own hearts. That we would understand the call to be a discipler is a costly call. As we consider the needs of the church, we should be reminded that in every area of our life, we are to endure the costly life of discipleship because that is what Jesus has purchased us for. And looking at the Great Commission, it can kind of become like this, uh, this fancy verse, this glorious verse of the church making disciples, and it can be exciting. It's the Great Commission. It's not the terrifying commission. And it can seem so beautiful, but it's not like this computer code that we press a prompt and automatically disciples are made. It's difficult. It's costly. It's messy. It takes time. You'll encounter sin. And remember the same Jesus who commissioned these disciples in the great commission to make disciples also encouraged them to think about discipleship a specific way. Look at Luke 14, verses 27 through 33. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. 
Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. As we consider the cost of this building, it's a great reminder that we do not forget the cost to follow Jesus. It demands everything. If you think that following Jesus is a great step towards cultural comfort or popularity, you're mistaken. Because cultural comfort and popularity can't save you and they can't love you. But on the cross, Jesus has done both of those things for you. And because of that, when we talk about the cost of discipleship, it's so much more different than seeing it as a tax placed upon those who follow Jesus. Because the same Jesus who says, this is the cost, it costs everything, also speaks this way in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. What's Jesus' point in this parable? It costs everything to follow Jesus. But it costs nothing to be spent for such a treasure. That there is great joy in giving everything that we might have the treasure of Christ. And the truth is for you, for me, Unless we are committed to the small and mostly unseen acts of discipleship, then we could have the biggest, most gold-plated building in all of the Western Hemisphere, but it would still be insufficient for what Jesus has called the church to do. The church is to make disciples, and that starts with you. I was talking to a brother last week who was talking that God has really laid on his heart to, to pray for longer periods of time. And he's been trying it. It's been difficult. He's always distracted. And what a blessing that it's hard. What a blessing that we wrestle with hitting our snooze alarm when we want to read the Bible because it reminds us that it's difficult because if it were easy, we wouldn't need Jesus. But when it's hard, we're reminded of the vast saving might of the God who has come and given us his Holy Spirit that we might do hard things for his glory. So be grateful that we're reminded of the costliness of following Jesus and the sacrifice he gave for us. The fourth reason why I'm thankful for the building fund is that it reminds us that ministry has no end. It's really interesting. So just last night I was uh, hanging out with our family and I walked through my points with my seven-year-old son. I said, Owen, what stood out to you the most? What's the most encouraging? And he said, this was the point. Like my seven-year-old, that ministry has no end that there will always be something to do. And so I hope today we see that too. And this is something that's been really near to my heart over this process. It's been really easy at some point to say, once this is done, then we can pause. We'll be good. But what's interesting, and I'm sure you've had this in your life, that once, whatever lies behind it, always changes. Right? Once we make the ask public, once we get the pledge cards back, once we secure financing, 
once we purchase the building, once the building is remodeled, it just keeps going and going and going and going. And all this goes to show that ministry doesn't really end. There's always something for God's church to be doing that's calling them to costly discipleship. And it's for our good. This isn't an ominous prison sentence of working out in a work camp. And what I love, one of my favorite stories in all scripture um, is Mark 6. And in this passage, the preceding passage, the disciples have been sent out two by two. And they go on really what is the first missionary journey. I guess Jesus was the first missionary. The second missionary journey, um, two by two, and they preach the gospel. They heal people. They cast out demons. They proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. And then they come back to Jesus. And look at what happens in Mark 6. Uh, I have to find it here in my Bible. Mark 6, verse 30 and 31. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. And Jesus said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. Why does Jesus say that? For many, that's many of the disciples, were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. So Jesus looks at everything they've been doing. He says, you guys are tired. That's hard work. Let's go to the desolate place and you guys can rest, take, take a load off. And this is Jesus. This is the one who knows their heart saying this to them. But then something really interesting happens. They get in a boat and they cross over the lake. And there are more people waiting for them across the lake. And on this day where Jesus has finally been like, you guys need to rest. Jesus spends all day preaching to these people. Not to the disciples. It's not this retreat center. They're back on the clock. And then the end of the day comes. And the disciples say, Jesus, we are in a desolate place. In other words, you brought us to where there was nothing you brought us to this corporate retreat center where there's no Wendy's in this entire area. Send these people home because they can't get food here. And then let's rest. This is why I love Jesus. Jesus loves making us uncomfortable. It is good for us to be made uncomfortable by Jesus. He says this. He looks at them. He says, you give them something to eat. Can you imagine what the disciples felt at this moment? Not only was it like, we were supposed to rest. It's my Saturday. <laughs> but then they look around and they're like, there's 5,000 people here, Jesus. <laughs> you want to... What do we do with this? And so they go out and they find a couple loaves and a couple fish. And something amazing happens. They bring it to Jesus. And look at what happens in Mark 41 through 44. And in taking the five loaves... And the two fish, Jesus looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they, that's the disciples, took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces of fish. And those who ate of the loaves were 5,000 men. See, here at the end of the worst ever vacation, these exhausted disciples stood satisfied. 
holding lunch for tomorrow. And the point is, is what these disciples thought they needed under the weight of making disciples was a day off. But what Jesus showed they needed was the rest that only comes from the hand of Jesus. That Jesus will always give you what you need to make disciples and obey him. And you will be satisfied. In those moments where we are burdened, the hand of the master stands holding to us a basket purchased in his blood, fueled by the Holy Spirit to spend and be spent for his kingdom. See, Matthew 24, Jesus says, one day the gospel will be proclaimed to the whole world and then the end will come. And in that day we will rest fully. We will be ministered by Jesus himself. The shepherd will shepherd us perfectly in his place forever. But until then, our rest is not apart from God's work. Our rest is in God's work. For it's from the hand of Jesus himself where he promises to give us exactly what we need. When we look at the building fund and what could be years down the road, don't neglect where God has put you right now. Just as our role as a church isn't done when we have a building, so your role as a Christian isn't completed when you reach some sort of milestone. Our role is completed when Christ comes to take us home. And until then, we look to the one who provides all things and we become satisfied. Ministry has no end on this side of the grave. And lastly, the last reason why I'm thankful for the building fund is that Jesus is our legacy. Look back to Psalm 20. Now remember in this psalm, God's people are petitioning to God to care for their king. And in the success of their king is their success But look at what God in his infinite wisdom caused these people to sing uh, thousands of years before Jesus came around in verses 4 through 8. So these are the people singing, May he, that is God, grant you, that's the king's heart's desire, and fulfill all of your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation. In the name of God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all of the king's petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we will rise and stand upright. Did you notice what these people hoped for? They didn't say, some trust in horses, some trust in chariots, but we trust in our king. That's not what they said. Now, it makes complete sense that they would say that. This is a song expressing their solidarity with the king, and in the goodness of the king, they get good in return. Why wouldn't they say, you trust in horses, you trust in chariots, we trust in our king? Because it's King David who wrote this psalm. And King David knows that the hope of God's people has to be someone greater even than David. The hope of God's people has to be in the name of the Lord, their God. David knew they needed a bigger hope and a better king. Brothers and sisters, it is in Jesus Christ where the king and the name of God 
finally come together for our deliverance. It is in Jesus Christ that we might rejoice in the salvation of that king, the king who was fully God and fully man, who died for our sins so that we might be saved by his righteousness. Which means this, when we look at Psalm 20, verse 5, where it says, May the Lord fulfill all of the king's petitions. This extends to Matthew 28. That when Jesus says, Go forth and make disciples of all nations. It is the pleasure of God to answer his plea. You see, Jesus is our legacy as a church, which means we have all the reasons for confidence that Jesus will do exactly what Jesus wants to do, came to do, died to do, even when our little sign of the church might seem to be in a moment of uncertainty. Jesus will build his church, and that is hope to all people. Let me close with this short story. In the 1800s, Korea was known as the Hermit Kingdom, and they were so worried about Western influence there um, that they didn't let any Christians into the country, and they were dedicated to violently putting out whatever Christian influence was already inside the country. Many Catholic missionaries were being slaughtered by the thousands for those who were inside of Korea, that they might preserve themselves from any sort of Western influence. But it just so happened at that time, a Welsh missionary named Robert Germain Thomas, who had been working in China, heard that despite all of this persecution, there was still a great zeal of the people of Korea to hear God's word. And so he felt called to go. He did one first exploratory mission, but was quickly put out by the amount of persecution that was in Korea. And then in 1866, he set sail on the Sherman, a trading vessel that was going to sail up to Pyongyang, Korea. And it was agreed upon that he would act as a sort of translator for the tradesmen, and in return, he'd be able to distribute Bibles and talk about Jesus to the people he met. Catastrophically, while the Sherman was still on the water, the Koreans and the traders opened fire on each other. And as the boat was inflamed and sinking, Thomas and whatever Bibles he could carry made it to the shore where he handed out Bibles to whoever he could, his last Bible filling the hand of a man whose other hand was filled with a sword that quickly beheaded Thomas. And thus ended probably the shortest and most fruitless mission trip in all of Christian history. But two decades later, another missionary named Samuel Moffat, when Korea had stabilized a little bit, made his way into Korea, and he found a small number of believers. And he was like, how did this happen? And so in doing some journalistic due diligence, he found that they all spoke of this man named Robert. Robert Germain Thomas. Park Chun Wan was the man who executed Thomas on the shores of Pyongyang. And he took the Bible that was opposite his sword and he read it. And he was converted. The Korean official named Park took the Bible that Thomas couldn't distribute. And he went and he plastered the wall of his house 
as a sort of triumph. He had defeated the God of the white men. But Pac read the wallpaper. And Pac's house became the first Protestant church in Korea. In the decades following Thomas's missions trip, 80,000 Koreans came to know Jesus Christ. And today, Korea is the second largest missionary sending country in the world. You see, Korea soon forgot about Robert Germain Thomas, but they couldn't forget about his Jesus. Sovereign Hope, we may not know what name will hang on the side of our building in one year or 10 years, but we know the name which hangs on heaven under which we labor for his glory. His glory to build his church and to care for it eternally. So if when all is said and done, all we are is wallpaper on the history of Missoula, may we be wallpaper that points to Jesus Christ. And because of this, we know that every dollar given, every disciple encouraged, every meek and feeble effort in evangelism is not lost to the pages of history, but stored in the great glorious plan of God, where in the manifold wisdom, his love and affection for broken people is made known, where the kingdom of darkness crumbles daily as the gospel proceeds slowly and triumphantly. So may we be thankful in our small portion of Jesus' story that we have to hang our hat on his hook, to secure our hopes on his glory, and to live for his name until he takes us to live with him in a house better than anything we could ever build, in a world greater than we can ever imagine. And may we be spent to that end. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what a privilege it is to be saved by your grace. Lord, when we look at the scope of Christian history, this, this church in a falling apart building in need of a new building is a miracle that you saved sinners, that you have gathered sinners here in a place where we can gather without threat of persecution, without threat of violence. What a treasure. So Lord, may we not waste the legacy of this church by striving not to live for the name of sovereign hope, but by striving individually to live for the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that printed on the back of our bulletins and perhaps hanging from our 